All right, wrestling with theology fans, it is Monday, and I am Pastor Doug Minton, which means we are standing in the confessional corner. And today we have a wonderful section of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession to look at. We're looking at Articles 18, 19, and 20, which talk about free will, the cause of sin, and good works. And this is especially appropriate as we begin the week leading up to Christmas. We have that time where Christmas is right there in front of us. And we have all sorts of mixed emotions. But today we're going to try to put everything straight so that we understand, especially what we believe, teach, and confess in regards to the great symbol, that we are simultaneously saint and sinner, that we are looking at free will and what that means for us as Christians and as people otherwise, but also what is the cause of sin and what does it mean to really do good works? Because we are bombarded by the secular songs about Santa, seeing when you are sleeping, knowing when you're awake, knowing if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. We get that drilled in us as we hear the song over and over again. But what do we see? This is one of those theologies we have to wrestle with, and especially this time of year. So let's get right into it. Article 18 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, reading from the Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, the Reader's Edition of the Book of Concord, and as this is not one of those that has been brought up by the confutation, the paragraph number continues, so we pick up in paragraph 67. <laughs> the adversaries accept Article 18 free will, although they add some references having nothing to do with this case. They also add a speech that neither should the free will be granted too much like the Pelagians, nor should all freedom be denied it like the Manichaeans. Very well, but what difference is there between the Pelagians and our adversaries, since both hold that people can love God and perform his commandments with respect to the substance of the acts and can merit grace and justification by works that reason performs by itself without the Holy Spirit? How many foolish things follow from these Pelagian opinions, which are taught with great authority in the schools? Augustine, following Paul, disapproves of these with great emphasis. We have repeated his opinion in the article Justification. We do not deny freedom to the human will. The human will has freedom in the choice of works and things that reason understands by itself. To a certain extent, reason can display public righteousness or the righteousness of works. It can speak of God, offer to God a certain service by an outward work, and obey public officials and parents. In choosing an outward work, it can hold back the hand from murder, adultery, and theft. Because human nature has been left with reason and judgment about objects subjected to the senses, choice between these things, the liberty and power to produce public righteousness are also left. Scripture calls this the righteousness of the flesh, which the carnal nature, that is reason, produces by itself without the Holy Spirit. However, the power of lustful desire is such that people more often obey evil inclinations than sound judgment. The devil, who is powerful in the godless, does not cease to stir up this weak nature to various offenses, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.2. 2. For these reasons, even public righteousness is rare among people. 
Not even the philosophers who seem to have hoped for this righteousness achieved it. But it is false to say whoever performs the works of the commandments without grace does not sin. The adversaries add further that such works also merit the forgiveness of sins and justification in a merely agreeable way. For without the Holy Spirit, human hearts lack the fear of God. Without trust toward God, they do not believe that they are heard, forgiven, helped, and preserved by God. Therefore, they are godless. And a diseased tree cannot bear good fruit, Matthew 7, 18, and without faith it is impossible to please God, Hebrews 11, 6. All right, so the adversaries in the confutation accepted Article 18 on free will, that we allow that humans have a free will in what reason can understand. But they add so many things. And they especially add the fact that we cannot have the free will have too much free reign, if you'll pardon the pun, in our lives, because that's what the Pelagians taught. Pelagius was an African bishop in the 4th century who taught that people were able to make themselves righteous before God, and then we were able to become Christians and follow after Jesus. They also say you can't fall off on the other side and say that there is no such thing as free will, as the Manichaeans did, that everything goes by fate, that God set in order a book of the world, and it has to go exactly that way. It's like reading a novel. You cannot change anything in the novel as you're reading it because it's not you who wrote the story. You are simply there as the recipient and the reader. You have no power over how the story goes. Emily says that's all very well and good because we disagree with both of them. But the problem is the Roman church had brought in so much Pelagianism that it is blinded to itself. The idea that you can merit grace and favor and justification through the works that you do, the idea that you can merit justification and grace by the satisfactions shows that they are truly following more after Pelagius than they are after Augustine or Paul, who fought against both these ideas. Because human nature wants us to have that free will, wants us to have the ability to make a decision for Jesus, to make a decision for what is right and what is wrong. And that is what is wrong with the world today. Everyone is deciding what is right and what is wrong, and the compass, the needle is always shifting. There is no true north on the compass anymore because, well, this is right. Well, no, 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 it was right last week, but now it's not because of whatever happened. And anything that is based on what happens in this world and the free will of the people doing things against society automatically has no firm foundation. It is shaky to begin with. Anytime we try to put something upon ourselves or upon society as being what we need to obey and follow. Now, granted, the fourth commandment tells us to obey the government. And we definitely need to do that as long as that does not cause us to sin against God. Which then, of course, brings out the Christian side of it where 
you have many different varieties of things going on because people have a different understanding of what sin is in God's eyes and how different things manifest sins against God that we cannot follow, which causes all sorts of problems and debates and wrestling over it, which is, well, why we're here. What is it that we need to stand firm on that gives us the most weapons against the theologies that we wrestle against? So let's look at it a little more, especially from the stance of free will. We look again at what this edition of the Book of Concord calls paragraph 70. We do not deny freedom to the human will. The human will has freedom in the choice of works and things that reason understands by itself. To a certain extent, reason can display public righteousness or the righteousness of works. It can speak of God, offer to God a certain service by an outward work, and obey public officials and parents. It can choose to do good things. It can choose to not do bad things, such as we can say, okay, I have not physically murdered somebody. I have not physically committed adultery with anyone. I have not stolen anything lately. And we can say, okay, these are all good things, and this is free will. We have the ability to be able to say, no, I won't kill this person. No, I won't commit adultery with this person. No, I won't steal this thing. But that doesn't make us righteous before God. That just shows that we have the ability that God has given to us of reason to know what is right and what is wrong. This was the basis of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Before eating the forbidden fruit, all Adam and Eve knew was good. They only had knowledge of the good. And there comes the curse. Now they know good and evil and have to choose how to do that. But the problem is, that has nothing to do with us and our relationship with God. It has nothing to do with us and our relationship with Jesus. It has to do with my relationship with you and everyone else on this earth. It has to deal with our neighbors, not with God. Nothing we do or don't do makes us righteous before God. Only the blood of Christ makes us righteous before God. And Melanchthon goes on to point out that not even the philosophers who try to bring up some great plan to be able to be righteous and live a good life have achieved it because it cannot be achieved in this life. As he finishes off that section, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith in your being the basis for your works, they are not good works, as we'll see in a few minutes when we get into Article 20. Let's move on into paragraph 73 and beyond. Although we admit that free will has the freedom and power to perform the extreme works of the law, we do not assign spiritual matters to free will. These are to truly fear God, believe God, be confident and hold that he cares for us, hears us, and forgives us. 
These are the true works of the first table, which the heart cannot produce without the Holy Spirit, as Paul says. The natural person, namely a person using only natural strength, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 2.14. People can determine this if they consider what their hearts believe about God's will, whether they are truly confident God cares for and hears them. Even the saints find keeping this faith difficult, which is not possible in unbelievers. But as we have said before, it begins when terrified hearts hear the gospel and receive comfort. We admit that in secular things, in earthly things, the free will has the freedom and power to perform the external extreme powers of the law. But we do not assign spiritual matters to free will. Because the things of the first table, having no other gods before him, not taking the Lord's name in vain, remembering the Sabbath, none of these things we can do by ourselves. Now, the honoring father and mother, not murdering, not committing adultery, not stealing, not bearing false witness, not coveting, all those things we have a power to be able to do or not do. And we have a choice in those matters because those, again, talk about our neighbors and our relationship with our neighbors. But notice that in all the free will and all the freedom we have, he says none of it belongs on the first table because we cannot do that without faith. We cannot do that without Christ. We cannot do that with first being declared righteous through his blood. He goes on, their distinction is helpful. Civil righteousness is assigned to free will, and spiritual righteousness is assigned to the governing of the Holy Spirit in the reborn. In this way, outward discipline is kept, because all people should know that God requires his civil righteousness, and that to some extent we can achieve it. And yet a distinction is shown between human and spiritual righteousness, between philosophical teaching and the teaching of the Holy Spirit. It can be understood why the Holy Spirit is needed. We did not invent this distinction. Scripture clearly teaches it. Augustine also presents it, and recently William of Paris has presented it very well. But those who dream that people can obey God's law without the Holy Spirit, and that the Holy Spirit is given so that by obeying the law may be considered meritorious, have wickedly hindered the distinction. Yes, civil righteousness is possible by our own works. Spiritual righteousness is not. God does require civil righteousness because that is why he gave the law in the first place. That was the law of the land in Eden. You shall not eat from the tree of the garden of good and evil, or from knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Before that, he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Both great and wonderful and holy commands from God. And could be done at that time, but they weren't. But that doesn't take away the spiritual righteousness of Adam and Eve believing in the descendant who would come, the seed of the woman who would eventually be born to save them from their sins. Faith is what brings us together. Faith is what allows us to worship God, to truly fear him in the way that he 
desires to be feared, not as the punishing father, but as the merciful father who picks up his fallen child and tells him everything will be okay because he can make it all okay by forgiving us all of our sins. And that's where we go into Article 19. The adversaries accept Article 19. In it, we confess that only God and he alone has created all nature and preserves all things that exist. Yet the cause of sin is the will of the devil and people turning away from God. According to the saying of Christ about the devil, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, John 8, 44. Very simple, short, to the point. God created everything, and everything was very good when he was done creating it. But sin is not from God. Sin comes from the will of the devil and those who have turned away from God. Now, how did this all happen? That's all in speculation because Scripture gives us the point that Satan fell at some point between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. And we can speculate all we want as to how that happened. We get glimpses of it in the fight between the dragon and Michael in Revelation. But again, people differ on that as to whether that was the original fight that when Satan was cast out of heaven, or is that the final one at the end of time? We don't know. What we do know is God is the source of all good. He is not the source of sin. He does not cause us to sin. Because why would he cause us to sin and then tell us not to? I mean, that makes no sense. So that's very straightforward. Everything good comes from God. Everything evil comes from the devil and those who desire to not do what God says. Now we move into Article 20. Again, a somewhat lengthy section here, but again, it has all been brought up again in Article 4 on justification, Article 12 on repentance, and he just has to go through and restate some things once again as he gets through the confutations notes on Article 20. In Article 20, they clearly state that they reject and condemn our statement that people do not merit the forgiveness of sins by good works. Mark this well. They clearly declare that they reject and condemn this article. What more can be said on a subject so clear? Here the framers of the confutation display what spirit leads them. What is more certain in the church than that the forgiveness of sins happens freely for Christ's sake, that Christ and not our works is the atoning sacrifice for sins. As Peter says, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Acts 10.43 We would rather give agreement to this church of the prophets than to the godless writers of the confutation who so rudely blaspheme Christ. These were writers, uh, there were writers who held that after the forgiveness of sins, people are righteous before God, not by faith, but by works themselves. Yet they did not hold that the forgiveness of sins happens because of our works, not freely for Christ's sake. The blasphemy of assigning Christ's honor to our works cannot be tolerated. These theologians are now entirely shameless if they dare to bring such an opinion into the church. Nor do we doubt that his most excellent imperial majesty and many of the princes would not have allowed this passage to remain in the confutation had they been advised about it. 
Here we could cite countless passages from scriptures and from the fathers, but we have said enough about this subject before. One who knows why Christ has been given to us and who knows that Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sins needs no further proof. Isaiah says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, in chapter 53, verse 6. The adversaries, on the other hand, teach that God does not lay our offenses on Christ, but on our works. Neither are we inclined to mention here the sort of works that they teach. We see that a horrible decree has been prepared against us, which would terrify us still more if we were arguing about doubtful or silly subjects. Our consciences understand that the adversaries condemn the clear truth, whose defense is necessary for the church and increases Christ's glory. Therefore, we easily look down on the terrors of the world, and we will bear with a strong spirit all suffering for Christ's glory and for the church's benefits. Who would not joyfully die in the confession of these articles that we receive the forgiveness of sins through faith freely for Christ's sake, and that we do not merit the forgiveness of sins by our works? The consciences of the pious will not have sure enough comfort against the terrors of sin and of death and against the devil tempting with despair if they do not know that their confidence lies in the forgiveness of sins freely for Christ's sake. This faith sustains and enlivens hearts in that most violent conflict with despair. Again, quickly just noting these because we have talked about it before in Articles 4 and 12. And Melanchthon says, we've talked about this before in Articles 4 and 12. But the confutation clearly rejects the clear truth that we cannot merit grace by our works. That good works only come through faith in Christ. And he says, if this were a silly or doubtful subject that we could just debate about and it have no bearing on anything... We wouldn't need to write anymore because it wouldn't matter. But we need to make sure this is clear. Good works only happen through faith in Christ. Period. We could say end of the subject there, but Melanchthon goes on for a few more paragraphs, as Melanchthon does. The cause is so worthy that we should refuse no danger. To every one of you who has agreed to our confession, do not yield to the wicked, but on the contrary, go forward more boldly. Do not yield when the adversaries, by means of terrors and tortures and punishments, try hard to drive away from you that comfort presented to the entire church in our article. Those seeking scripture passages to settle their minds shall find them. As the saying goes, at the top of his voice, Paul cries out that sins are freely forgiven for Christ's sake. It depends on faith, he says, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed, Romans 4, 16. You can also see Romans 3, 24, and 25. If the promise were to depend on our works, it would not be sure. If forgiveness of sins were to be given because of our works, when would we know that we had received it? When would a terrified conscience find a work that it could consider enough to reconcile God's anger? We spoke fully about this matter before. The reader can get the references there. The unworthy presentation of the subject has forced us not to discuss, but complain. They have clearly gone on record as disapproving of our article that we receive forgiveness of sins not because of our works, but through faith and freely because of Christ. The adversaries also add references to their own condemnation, and it is worthwhile to provide several of them. 
They quote from 2 Peter 1.10, Be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Now you see, reader, that our adversaries have not wasted any effort in learning logic, but have the art of concluding whatever pleases them from the Scriptures. For they conclude, Make your calling sure by good works. Therefore they think that works merit the forgiveness of sins. This is a very nice way of thinking if one would argue this way about a person whose death sentence has been pardoned. The, command, the judge commands that from now on you stop stealing from others. Therefore, you have earned the pardon from the punishment because you no longer steal from others. To argue in this way makes a cause out of no cause. Peter speaks of works following the forgiveness of sins and teaches why they should be done. They should be done so that the calling may be sure. That is, should they fall from their calling if they sin again. Do good works in order that they may, be, may persevere in your calling and in order that you do not lose the gifts of your calling. They were given to you before and not because of the works that follow and which now are kept through faith. Faith does not remain in those who lose the Holy Spirit and reject repentance. We have said before, Article 12, Paragraph 1, faith exists in repentance. They had other references that make no more sense. Finally, they say that this opinion was condemned a thousand years before in Augustine's time. This also is quite false. For Christ's church always held that the forgiveness of sins is received freely. Indeed, the Pelagians were condemned. They argued that grace is given because of our works. Besides, we have shown above well enough that we hold that good works should follow faith. Do we then overthrow the law, asked Paul? On the contrary, we uphold the law, Romans 3.31. Because when we have received the Holy Spirit through faith, the fulfilling of the law necessarily follows. Patience, chastity, and other fruit of the Spirit gradually grow by this love. Good works come through faith. They are the fruits in keeping with repentance that John the baptizer demanded the people to come and bring as they were coming to him to receive his baptism of repentance. It is not that they were forgiven because they bore fruit. They bore fruit because they were forgiven. They bear fruit. You bear fruit because you have been made a good tree by the forgiveness of your sins in Christ's blood. All of your good works have nothing to do with you. They are all a proclamation of your faith in Christ and what he has done for you, freely forgiving you all your sins. And when we start to take pride in what we do, that's when we fall back into sin again. Because pride is a sin. Yes, we can do a lot of good works. We can even list them out. But we list them not because we want praise for them. We list them to prove what God has done through us. And that is the Christian life. Doing the good works, knowing that they are done by faith. Not that we're trying to earn God's favor, but because we already have it. All right, that's it for this week. I wish you a very Merry Christmas as we get ready for that time and especially to remember what we've talked about with Jesus over against Santa. But yes, Jesus also knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good. And he's the one who makes you good.
He is the one who allows you the ability and gives you the strength to wrestle with the theology. Amen.